Naaman is facing an incurable disease. Not all forms of leprosy were deadly. Uh, leprosy is a word that was actually applied to a lot of different forms of skin diseases, but some of it was. And there's reason to believe that possibly Naaman's was. When we look at the king of Israel's answer, when he says, am I God to somehow give life? It could tell us an indication of the type of leprosy that Naaman had. Regardless, he had an incurable disease and he needed an answer. Naaman gets in front of the one person on the planet that can give him an answer. He gets an answer and it's really easy. And he's angry and leaves in a rage. How can this be? Many of us at times, you're going to find this morning, if you'll open your heart to the truth, many of us are just like Naaman. We despise God's answers. And it's not because they're hard. It's not because they're unclear. It's because we don't like the answer. We don't want to do what God has told us to do. Why? I'm going to submit the primary reason why is because we don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Like, why would you tell me to do this, God? Why would you tell me to do that, Lord? Why does your word tell us that we are to forgive our trespassers? Why does your word tell us that we are to do good to those who spitefully use us? I don't understand why you say to do what you say to do, and so I'm not going to do it. And we find that just like Naaman, when we are unwilling to take God's clear commands, we cut ourselves off from transformation. Now, we read the whole story, and here's what we know. Naaman's life is transformed. We know that he's made better than he was before he got sick. His flesh was like that of a child. In other words, it was like totally healed, completely Here's a guy who was battle-wounded, a guy who had been through war, a man's man, a warrior of warriors, and he was healed to the place that like, his skin looked like fresh. But we also see in his soul, he found the truth. He declared there is no God in all of earth except the God of Israel. So he was transformed. He ended up getting the healing that he needed. But the question I want us to look at this morning is how? What stands in the way between a sinner and his salvation? What stands in the way for the saint who still needs healing, the saint who is wounded and hurt and their, their faith is dry and it seems to produce no life and they seem to have no power? What stands in the way for that person and their transformation? I believe we can learn some things this morning as we study Naaman's experience here in 2 Kings chapter 5. I want to share with you four truths about transformation. If you want to be transformed, you will need to know these things. 
If you're praying for transformation for somebody, you need to know to be praying for these things to be revealed to whoever you're praying for. First truth this morning about transformation, number one, we all have needs beyond the reach of human help. We all have needs beyond the reach of human help. The Bible says that Naaman was a great man. What that means is is that he had a lot of power, he had a lot of influence, he had a lot of wealth, he had a lot of prestige. God had actually used Naaman to lead the Syrian army to bring judgment against Israel. Naaman was like the highest of the command. We see that Naaman simply goes to the king. He has a need, and so he goes to the king and says, here's what my need is, and the king takes and stamps his little stamp of approval on a letter and sends him on his way to who? The king of Israel. This is a guy who had great power, great influence, great wealth, great connections, And you know what he found out? All of it was utterly meaningless to heal him of his life-threatening disease. The reality is, I, I use the term empty greatness. That's what the greatness of the world really is. It's an empty greatness. They cannot add a single year to your life. It cannot give you purpose. It cannot give you meaning. It cannot save your soul. It cannot heal incurable diseases. The the greatness of the world, no matter how great it is, it is still empty greatness. The reality is we came into the world with nothing and we will leave the world with nothing. We will return to the dirt. Naaman was a great man. He had great power, he had great influence, yet he could not find the answer to his greatest need. You know, there are certain needs that you have that nobody will ever have an answer for but God. The salvation of your soul, redemption of your sins, the forgiveness of your evil deeds, there is no answer anywhere else outside of Jesus Christ. God alone holds the answers to these things. Which brings me to my second point, God alone holds the answers to our greatest needs. You know, these needs that God has the answers to, they often force us to look to God. Think about it. What's the likelihood that Naaman would have ever turned to God if it wasn't for this incurable disease. It's an embarrassing truth, but the same is true of most of us. I mean, God deserves to be followed. He deserves to be worshiped. He deserves the fruit of his labor. He sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be in a relationship with him. He has gone to the furthest extreme possible to save us and redeem us, and yet we don't search for him. We don't seek him. 
if it weren't for catastrophe with which there was no human answer, most of us, just like Naaman, would have never went to find an answer from God. And to that degree, we see that God actually uses at times suffering and pain and sorrow and what is incurable, what the world has no answer for, our needs that are beyond human help. God uses these things at times to draw us to him. And you know, when we see this truth, it'll often change the way we pray. It'll change the way that we see suffering. I don't know that it'll ever make it enjoyable. I don't think suffering is supposed to be enjoyable. But it does change it a little bit when you understand what's going on. You'll find, especially even in the lives sometimes of people you're praying for, people that need Jesus, people that aren't saved. Sometimes the wrong thing to pray is, God, take away all their pain, take away all their sorrow. God, don't let them face this catastrophe. Because sometimes those are the very things that God uses to bring them to a place where they're calling out to him. God has an answer to our greatest needs. Look what Psalm 119 and verse 67 says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. We see that sometimes God uses affliction to drive us to him. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. You know, sometimes we are afflicted because we went astray. We went down our own way. We tried it our own, what we thought was right. We knew God said differently, but we thought we knew better, and we go astray, and all of a sudden, we're afflicted, we're wounded. But you will find that even in that place, God has the ability to meet us there, to speak to us there. He has an answer for us there. God always has an answer. If you are here this morning, and you are struggling, and you Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you're dealing with anger and frustration and pain and sorrow and depression. Maybe you've got a need that there seems to be no answer for. Maybe you're here this morning and you are lost and you are not right with God and you know it. Whatever the need is that you are facing, hear me this morning. God always has an answer. God has an answer to your need. And what we see about God's answer it's normally really clear. It's not confusing. It's really simple. To Naaman, go to this specific river and dip seven times. No confusion there what the directions were. And yet, Naaman rejected God's answer. Why? Brings me to my third point this morning. Don't let the river fool you. Naaman was primarily, when we look at his concerns, Naaman was primarily angry with the idea of washing in the Jordan River. And I'm going to explain why I think that was the case in a moment. One more thing I want to point out, though, about Naaman's anger and his fury. So, right, I've already explained Naaman was like general of generals. When he has a need, he goes straight to the king. 
King takes his signature ring, stamps it on the letter, and sends him with authority to go make demands of the king of Israel. This is a guy with great power. He gets called to Elisha's house, and when he shows up, read the text carefully, Elisha does not even come to meet him. He sends his servant. That's what it said. Elisha doesn't even show up. And it actually made him mad. He said, oh, I thought Elisha was going to come and he was going to wave his hand in the air and do some magic stuff and heal me. No, Elisha just sends a servant to give Naaman commands. You know what's happening here? God is humbling Naaman. You know what Naaman's thinking? Do you not know who I am? I am the great Naaman. You will find that that attitude will keep you from God. You will find that often what stands before you in transformation is that you need to stink and humble yourself and hit your knees and recognize you're not all that. The world does not worship you. The world is not impressed by you. The rest of us do not worship you. The rest of us are not impressed by you. And you need to quit worshiping you. And you need to quit being impressed by you. And you need to humble yourself and acknowledge, Naaman, you've got an incurable disease that your greatness could do nothing for. The need that you face is something that all of that pomp and prestige has obviously failed to meet. The transformation in your heart, the bitterness that still grips you no matter how much wealth you have, there is a need in there that you have got to humble yourself and acknowledge you need help. And you are in no position to be dictating how you get that help. Do you want help or not? I think that's one thing that's going on here. And then Naaman also tells us, he thinks it's a stupid plan. Like this is just, just makes no sense to me. The rivers back home are greater. They're cleaner. They're better. The river of the Jordan, it's dirty compared to my rivers back home. If somehow washing in a river was going to make me clean, wouldn't it make sense to wash in a cleaner river? This is nonsense. You know, the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. I will say it again. It's not that God's commands are confusing in that we don't know what he said. It's not that God's commands are not clear. It's that we're like, no, that's just, you can't work that way. That's silly, too easy. Naaman comes prepared with thousands of dollars and gifts to give, right? I mean, he, he, he's got it in his mind. He has a way that he can obtain his healing. And when he finds out nobody wants the gifts, we're not, not going to take them, but what you do need to do is go wash in that dirty river over there seven times. He says, no, that, that is absurd. This is almost an insult to my intelligence. You will find that people today still struggle with the simplicity of God's answer especially sinners who need to be saved. The answer is simple, to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Like trust Jesus to cleanse me of my sins. No, nah, it can't be that easy. No possible way. And, and, and we immediately 
It's just like we feel insulted that God's answer is so easy. And much like Naaman, we often reject God's clear way to transformation. You're going to find the same thing is true for us as Christians. I promise you this. If you are a Christian, even for a matter of months, there will come a time that your heart will get sideways. You'll find yourself distant from God. You'll find yourself having an attitude and harboring bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred and malice and things that you just know this heart should not be feeling. And God will give you some pretty clear instructions. Like, forgive those who have trespassed against you. Well, that's a pretty simple instruction. And we're like, no, mm -mm, not going to happen. I am, they, they hurt me too much and they need to pay. You see, forgiveness is the opposite of making somebody pay. Forgiveness is actually the releasing of debt. But we're like, no, no, they need to pay. And now all of a sudden, you know what happens? We hurt ourselves from our transformation. The bitterness all of a sudden stops us dead in our tracks. And I'm not saying you lose your salvation. What I'm telling you is like transformation, sanctification, it's this process, brothers and sisters. And you will find even as a Christian, sometimes we cut ourselves off from the very transformation that God is leading us to. And it's not because we don't know what we're supposed to do. We just don't like the answer. You know, he focused on the river. And he focused on cleaner waters. And I want to address that. Because I do believe, I really do, I believe there's some, some symbolism here that often happens to us. I know that I've heard it over and over and over again. I've heard people say the same thing Naaman did. They look at God's answer, which is forgiveness in Christ and becoming a member of God's family, which is the church. And they look at that river and they say, oh, no way. That thing's filthy. They often look at the messengers and they see problems with the messengers and they reject, just like Naaman, like, no, I'm not here. I'm not hearing anything from that person. Be careful not to reject the message because you have an unfavorable opinion of the messenger. Be careful not to be so focused on the river that you lose sight of the God of the river. And I've watched it happen. People say, well, you know, I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm not going to turn to God. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in that stuff. I don't believe in the Bible. Because 43 years ago, I saw somebody do this in a church. I want to say that I acknowledge that sometimes bad things happen in and through the church. Now, let me deal with that. What does the Bible actually teach about the church? That's important to know. The Bible teaches that, first of all, when we get saved, we are babies in Christ, infants. And that there should be this progression where some of us eventually hit spiritual maturity. We don't arrive, but we are mature. Paul even rebukes a bunch of people one time and basically says, you should be mature, but you're not. You're still like infants. You still need to be treated like little babies in the faith, and you should have grown up by now. But here's the principle. In the church, the true church, the saved church, I'm going to deal with the fake church in a little bit, but the true church, 
people who are really Christians. You're going to have babies. That means you're going to have toddlers. You're going to have teenagers who don't listen to anybody and think they know better than everybody else, which is where most of y'all live. And then you're going to have like young adults and mature adults, spiritually speaking. So here's what that means. The church is going to be a mess sometimes. That's what it means. The church is full of people. And you know what people do? People things. It's full of Christians that are battling between the flesh and the spirit. And sometimes we're going to fail. I wish I could tell you that every Christian, myself included, was always going to listen to the Holy Spirit and never going to give in to the flesh and never going to get off bent sideways. But it's just not true. We all at times fail. Guess what that means? You're going to have failure in the church. And then Jesus takes it a step further. And he gives this analogy where he talks about a field that was planted with wheat. And one day, the workers of the field start taking a close look. And they realize there's some tares in there. Tares are like a kind of a poisonous plant that looks like wheat. But it's nasty. It tastes terrible. And it kind of ruins the crop. And so the servants come. And they say, hey, the enemy came and planted tares here amongst the wheat. Do you want us to go pluck it all out? Jesus said, no, don't do that. You start doing that, you'll actually ruin the good wheat. So here's what Jesus taught us, even in the church, his church, the church, the true church. You're going to have imposters who are not Christians at all sitting amongst you. Sinners pretending to be saints. But you know what sinners do? No matter how hard they pretend, they act like sinners. Jesus said, this is what the church is going to look like. And so we've got to get it out of our mind, this devilish lie, that somehow the church is supposed to be perfect. That if we are what God really called us to be, that there wouldn't be these problems and selfishness and hurt. Where do you get that? Have you actually read the book? Have you even studied the book of Acts, which in my opinion had the greatest, most spirit-filled church that there ever was? Even they had problems they had to deal with. What? This is part of life on this side of heaven. And so what I want to say is, don't let the river fool you. Don't think, well, I'm going to reject God because I saw hurt and pain somewhere else or I experienced hurt and pain in a church or somebody that was a Christian said this or did this to me. Listen to me. If that really happened, I am sorry. But you need to hear me and you need to hear me in the depth of your soul. Those excuses are not excuses for not following God. And you cannot reject God God because of those excuses and think that someday when you stand before him, everything's going to be okay because it's not. Your excuses will crumble. God is good. God is God. God is holy. His word is true and his commands are to be followed. Don't let the river fool you. And I want to say this. I'm going to go on a little tangent and I'm going to come back home. 
but I'm passionate about what I'm about to tell you. I am sick and tired of the church apologizing for the church. Stop it. We have become, it's unbelievable. It's like we're always on the defense apologizing for ourselves and for God. It's stupid. I've been doing what I do for 20 years. It's not a long time, but it's long enough. And in that 20 years, God has blessed me with the privilege of doing ministry, preaching, being part of revivals, camp meetings, special services, Christian events in almost 35 of the 50 United States. Literally, coast to coast, from Washington to California to Texas to Florida to New York and about everywhere in between. I've been able to do ministry in America, the Philippines, Haiti, Honduras, Mexico. I say all that to say, I'm not bragging about me, but I actually have a very vast experience working with multiple churches, multiple different Christian groups around the globe. And here's what I'm going to tell you. The narrative that somehow the church is out there just hurting people is garbage. It is not true. And we need to quit apologizing as if the church is somehow some mean, hurtful place. It's not. These are excuses that people most often make that really, they just want to blame their sinful lifestyle on somebody else. And it's easy to point at, well, the church did this and the church did that. Stop it. We see the same ridiculous mindset with uh, police today and authority in general. This whole idea of defunding the police. It's one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard in my life. Had you told me 20 years ago that that was going to be a legitimate like, phrase and people are going to get behind it, I would have told you you were nuts. And you know what's happened? With millions, I repeat millions of incidents that happen every day hundreds of millions of incidents that happen every year, we've decided to focus in on the six or the 20. I don't care how high you want that number to go. The thousand, the 0.000001% of times that bad cops, and yes, there are bad cops, but they are the extreme rare scenario. And for us to take an absolutely stupid, mindless view that all of them are bad because of a focus on a small group of people, it's just delusional. That's really what it is. It is an absolute delusional way to look at life. And the same thing's happened at the church. We've got to quit apologizing for the church. Because I'm telling you, the church holds the words of life. We are the light of the world. We are the only true body of believers on the planet that are preaching the gospel, the church of Jesus Christ. There is none other. And if it's not us that are preaching against sin and warning about hell and telling people about Jesus, then who else will? Don't let the river fool you. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. You know what the gospel is in a nutshell? The reality that all of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned against God. And all of us need a savior. And that Jesus came and he bled and died on the cross for our sins, for your sins. He died because of what you did. So that what you did might be paid for. So that you could look to him in faith. And what you did, Jesus, you paid for my sins. And you are God and I will follow you. And there is salvation in faith in Jesus. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God for salvation. Number four, we're done this morning. The final truth about transformation that we see from our text is that transformation comes through obedient faith. Naaman is miraculously healed. His answer does come, but not until doing it God's way. Like none of the other rivers could have worked. He couldn't have thought, well, I'm going to try this seven thing dipped mysterious answer, but I'm going to wait till I get back and do it at a river I like. Wouldn't have worked. God said, here's the place, here's the location, here's how, here's the number of times. Real clear. And it wasn't until Naaman did it exactly like God told him to do it that he found his healing, that he found transformation. We must learn to live with unquestioning faith. If God has said it, period. That's all that matters. We must learn, as Naaman had to learn, to quit questioning God's clear instructions. We don't have to understand it all. The Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding. You're not going to understand it all the time. God, why am I supposed to love my enemies? That doesn't sound right. God, why am I supposed to forgive those that trespass against me? That doesn't seem right. God, why am I supposed to do this? God, why am I supposed to do that? You have got to stop with the why. And you have got to trust that God is smarter than you are. That God actually knows what you don't. That his ways are higher than your ways. You have got to trust that God is good. You have got to trust that God as a loving father is always leading you into a relationship with him. A better place. A deeper walk of faith. That wherever God is taking you to be in the will of God is always better. And you don't have to understand all the... the, what's going to happen and why and what's the motive of God? Why does your word tell me to do this? You have got to be willing to follow the Lord with obedient faith. It must be God's way. There's no other way. There are no other options. And in most cases, you are either living by obedient faith in God or you're not. Most of the time, it's that simple. Either you are living in an unquestioning faith or you're not. And the difference between the two 
is either dying in the wilderness because you won't obey God or living in the promised land. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for like 40 years because they wouldn't be, they simply wouldn't trust and obey God. You know, it's, an, it's, a, it's a perfect example that even as Christians, we can hit the wall. So these people are led out of Egypt. You know the story. Moses parts the Red Sea with his staff. The sea parts. They get over on dry land. The waters collapse out on their enemies. God takes care of them, feeds them with manna from heaven, feeds them with water, or gives them drink water from the rock. Like, miraculous. God has shown he is their God. He is with them. He can destroy their enemies. And God says, now, I want you to go into the promised land. So they send in 12 spies to go take a look at it, and 10 of them come back and say, oh, we're going to die. Whatever God was telling us to do now, do not trust God. Like, yes, he led us through the Red Sea. We get all that, but... Man, those people are big. And God said, and this, I want you to read the account of it in the New Testament with me. Hebrews 3, verses 16 through 19. Look what it says about these people. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. What I want you to see this morning, if you are a person that is lost and you need to be saved, or if you are a Christian and you have hit the wall, I want you to see something this morning. It is a sin to not trust God. God sees it as a sin to not be obedient to his word. It's not just a problem. It's not just a personal thing that you need to be working on. Like it is a sin that needs to be repented of. Their unbelief equaled their disobedience and consequently they died in the wilderness. And I have watched so many Christians live their life in the wilderness, spiritually speaking. Spiritually, they're dry. And you know what's sad about it? Almost 100%, honestly, almost 100% of these Christians, they started out on fire for God. And everything was awesome. And it's like they could not ever imagine, ever, not having the love and the joy and the drive and the passion that they have. And then time goes on, and they give in to temptation. They don't listen to God's advice about how to handle relationships, how to handle anger, how to handle bitterness, what to do, what not to do. And they know it's not, again, I want to say it over and over and over again. It's not that it's not clear. It's not that they didn't know. God was super clear. They just thought they knew better. And all of a sudden, it's like the spiritual power dries up, the hunger for God dries up, the desire to even be in the house of God dries up, the desire to be in the Word dries up, and it just kind of becomes this dry, barren Christian existence where we're just traveling in circles, as these people did, for the rest of their lives in the wilderness. And God is saying, you did not have to live there, child. God is saying, I 
died for you. I sent Jesus to die for you for so much more than to live your life in this dry, barren wilderness. But you have to trust me. You don't get to write the rules. You don't have to understand it all. You simply have to trust me and obey. You know what we find is that God, for one reason or another, he always calls us to live by faith. It's one of the reasons we don't always understand. It doesn't make sense. Because God wants us to live by faith. God says, I'm not actually going to give you the whole answer. I'm not going to explain why. All I'm going to do is give you the instructions, and you're just going to have to choose whether you trust me or not. And so he calls us to live by faith. He intentionally calls us to things, leads us to things, commands us to a lifestyle that at times it's like, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I know God said it, and so I have no option but to trust God and to believe God and therefore obey God and walk by faith. Transformation comes by obedient faith. As our worship team comes this morning, can I tell you that what we tend to do with this whole obedient faith piece, we tend to think to ourselves like, God, I will be super obedient. I really will. If you'll first explain this, like, God, I will give up this unequally yoked relationship if you'll first show me who you're going to put me with later. God, we will make this relationship godly if you'll first change this, this, and this. You don't get to write the rules. You are not God. And God does not change his rules for anyone, not me, not you, not anybody. We've got to do it his way with unquestioning faith. I want us to close with one passage that's really hopeful. You know, if you have been hurt, if you found yourself like all of us at times focusing on how polluted the river can be, you find it difficult, the pain and the struggle that is found even inside the church. Look at the promise of Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. There's going to be a new river, brothers and sisters. Bright as crystal. That's clear. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. Man, what a day that's going to be. We're going to see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Look to that river. Know that there is coming a day when God will make all things right.
when there will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. Nobody will do one another wrong again. All of us that are saved and born again, we will think clearly. We will be clearly. We will not have a flesh nature that we have to fight and war with. There is coming that river. Until then, we've got to trust God with the one we have now. Amen.